guest today is Kauri Hero from Mask. Mask is the D-Mesh VPN browser, app store protocol, and earning system that makes living in Web3 anonymous and private. With Mask, you can get beyond borders, serve, and consume data from anywhere in the world. With people around the world coming together to pull their internet connections, Mask opens access to truth and freedom for everyone worldwide. Mask gives you secure and anonymous access to the global internet. This level of privacy did not exist, so they built it. So, Kari, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Glad to have you, man. So, we were talking earlier before I hit record, and I wanted you to continue on that path because it's very important I capture this. I mean, there's so many things going on in the crazy world we live in today that we've, we have come to accept the unacceptable, rationalize the irrational, and normalize the abnormal. Mm. So back to you. Hey, I like, I like that, uh, the, those um, phrases you use. It's, you know, so much has changed in the last few years. Like, uh, man, things that, you know, you'd sit with your family and say, you know, what if I told you two years ago that you wouldn't be allowed to go out? six months you uh you have to wear you know you have to show a, a qr code to get into a restaurant or prove something that you had done you know it's like it's so alien years ago people would have joked around and said oh that would never happen governments aren't that corrupt or things are not that uh you know dramatic and look at what we're living in now you know it's it's just crazy um so yeah lots of things have changed but but yeah, we, we were talking, you know, really interesting stuff um, about how, you know, it's a slippery slope with with things that shift in society. And especially, you know, when when you've got uh, groups, you know, governments or legislators or, yeah, even opinion, opinion leaders um, that if you if you feel like something isn't right or feels uncomfortable, like we have we have to speak up and do something or say something and get a movement or else it, it could be too late later on, you know, to change it. Yeah. So that's that's actually interesting because I've always wondered at what point do we say enough is enough? Because we as humans first, secondly as citizens. And thirdly, taxpaying citizens, you know, we all agreed to be bound by a set of rules called a constitution. And on top of that, we agreed to be taxed and employ and elect fellow humans to be custodians and enforcers of those rules. At what point did that change, in your opinion? Mm. Yeah, and, and the, the point, um, important, important point to make is that in the United States, which I've lived, you know, a good amount of time as well, um, you have this like fundamental foundation for the way, you know, governments are supposed to uh, govern their citizens, right? That's the Constitution. But lots of countries in the world don't have a fundamental document like that, or some founding fathers who were profound in thinking about how, you know, things should be worked together as for the people. Um, so many places don't have that. So you've got this amazing forward-looking set of things that, that people agreed on at the time. And then it, it provides the citizens 
and hopefully education uh, in high school is good enough to keep teaching about constitution. And of course, that's another topic too, but you know, that it would allow people to say, well, hey, this is something that's very important and certain things happening are infringing on that. Let's do something before that gets violated, right? And in lots of countries, there is no, there's no template for that. And so people are like, people are lulled into um, false senses of, oh, this won't happen to us. This won't happen now, you know? And like what we just talked about before you hit record was, you know, a big reason why I'm so passionate about what we're working on with masks and the um, preservation of digital freedom, because that's how everyone, how so much of expression is is done now, right? It's, it's all done online. A lot of it is. Like, I would just hate to think forward and say to my kids, you know, one of my kids comes up to me and says, hey, dad, um, why did my account online get blocked? Because I said something I believed in. And I would hate to sit there and have that conversation and say, well, hey, you know, it changed like maybe 10 years ago and we saw some of it happening and we didn't really do anything. We didn't think it would happen. We didn't think we'd get censored this way. But unfortunately, that's just the rules. <laughs> I mean, how crap would you feel if you had that conversation with your kids and you're trying to speak up for something they believe in and that's just now against the rules? Like, it's just crazy. Do you then think kids may not even ask that question years from now because they may grow up in an era where freedom of speech just no longer exists. So, you know, there's an old saying, you don't miss what you never had. Mm. So those of us who had it know what was lost. And when they grow up in an era where it just didn't, it didn't exist, they won't have to ask that question. Mm. In a way, that's kind of a scarier thought, right? Because that is the truth, right? If you don't know what you, you know, you don't miss what you'd never had. Um, it's, it's that slippery slope thing, right? Like, and you really have to think, okay, at what point do people stand up and, and like wake up? Or, you know, what, what, what do people do on a daily basis to uh like inspect those things and say okay is this is this going to be something that changes do i want this to change um what do i do about it and that's unfortunately a lot of people feel powerless uh when they realize some of that they're like well i'm just insignificant on one person right like what can i change you know but that's all it takes to change something even in your own world it's just one person needs to do something um different and that's how movements change that happen right like one person stands up and says, you know, I don't think this is right, and um, decides to to say something. But uh, yeah, that's curious movement. too. Mm. Yeah, that's very curious because there's always the ever lingering question on what is safety, what is security, what is freedom, right? So your freedom is your security. It's the ultimate security. Safety is a temporary measure. Mm. So are we trading our security for safety, thereby losing our freedoms because technology today, for example, social media, right? People can do all these interesting things conveniently, but they give up their privacy. And by giving up your privacy, all of your personal data can be used a million different ways from spying on you, monetizing your life and everything else that comes with that. 
So for convenience, are we then trading our security for the safety of comfort, right? <clears throat> Without realizing it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the key, I actually was writing some uh, things for something else I was working on too. And, and the key word you said was convenience, right? And I feel like uh, personally, like this is just some of my views. <clears throat> the biggest, well, the, the ease of the shifts that are happening by the powers that be, quote unquote, powers that be, is purely because of the average person trading some, some, some things for convenience. And it seems to be a very commonly repeated behavior where they trade something for convenience, whether it's I'll trade my money for convenience and buy a service. Like who didn't order in those um, ready to cook meals, you know, in the last few years, right? You don't go to yeah. the supermarket, right? That you said that you get sent a box and it's got all the ingredients that you need and you cook it at home. And mm -hmm. you know, that's a convenience thing. You traded money for that. Um, Banks, that's a way that people trade financial security and safety of their cash. And they put it in an institution who's supposed to have safety nets for them. And that's a convenient thing that, hey, almost everybody in the world does. Or the, banked, the, the banked people do every day. Um, and then when it comes to online, you've got the people who've traded privacy for convenience. And that's something that I think maybe I've seen the shift in the generations behind us that they're realizing how powerful they are as I guess not to like categorize people because I hate the way that the corporations have done it but we're like each of us is data points on a digital landscape right and if people don't realize how powerful they are as one of those they've traded away their power or their identity online and what they're trading it for is convenience right the Google suite of products is so powerful because the minute you get an account, you get access to everything because guess what? They know all the stuff you're doing. So why is it so easy to use? Well, if I walk down the street and go to a shop, Google Maps knows I've gone taken this route and they know I've gone to this shop. So when I want to search something, hey, I want to buy a soda, it's going to say, hey, this shop here is open. <laughs> and for me, I'm like, wow, that's so cool. That's convenient. I don't even need to think anymore. It's like, well, that's kind of like, do you not want to think anymore? Like, you've just traded all these yeah. behavioral patterns and monetized it for someone else, and they're delivering you what they think you want. Now, if you don't think that's a change in your freedoms, then you're disillusioned because nowadays that's what's happening, and everyone's doing it. So it's not vilified. It's not like, oh my God, he uses Google. Like, he's the enemy. <laughs> but that's how powerful this trade off is. And I think. Part of what I feel um, our goal is at Mask is to make people aware that those trade-offs happen, but there's a way to, to stop those trade-offs if you don't want them to happen and take certain aspects of your life um, back in terms of being, hey, if I think this is important to me, I don't want other people or other companies to know it, then it's valuable and there's ways you can protect that value, you know? That's something i've always thought about you know um we have this fascination with convenience and i've actually heard people say things like oh i mean they they have all my information so whatever i'm just gonna use it anyway i've heard people say that on the other hand you know how do we at what point do we say no because these novel ideas start 
in a very altruistic manner. Hey, here's free search. Hey, here is, you know, a navigation map. And we have a, nat- a tendency to just embrace it all, right? Mm. And at some point, and this is a recurring theme where it's a bait and switch, freemium, right? And we get so conditioned. I asked this afternoon, I actually did a survey um, with, well, not a big one, five of my friends actually. And I asked them for my phone number. None of them remembered. And I was guilty of that. You know, it's interesting. I mean, there was a time. Now, I learned how to drive on a stick shift. I could read a map. I can use a compass. They're basic skills. Yeah. And it seems like I constantly have to remind myself on how to use those tools because you get so accustomed to your smartphone and all the conveniences. Whereas, as you said earlier, you're giving up your, you know, geolocation coordinates, you know, the pace at which, I mean, your phone is like the, 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 the spy permanently attached to you. It gets your healthcare vitals, the pace that you walk, mm. where you go, how long you were there for. If you're using the wireless payment system, you know, they know how much you spent on what. And this is a very dangerous, um, you know, that's a very dangerous locum of power for any one entity to have. So at Mask, you know, I'm very curious and, you know, what you guys are looking to do in the longer term, predominantly around, you know, financial transactions, around privacy controls, self-sovereignty and true, you know, ownership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of that uh, aspect, we're just really we're wanting that uh, whole, you know, software and project concept to be the gateway for people to do what they wish um, online. So we want to build out the tools and the features and then let the users, you know, decide what they want to do with it. So if someone feels like, hey, when I go to a maybe there's a bunch of different sites and platforms that I want to interact with. But I don't want that to be tracked. I don't want my ISP to know, or maybe I'm on a, like a, I don't know, maybe I'm at, I'm at a university and I don't want like the Wi-Fi, you know, to know that I'm on this or whatever. It'll work in a way that, you know, like a VPN would, it's going to, it's going to cover uh, where your location is, is coming from and provide that extra layer of privacy. But that, that could be used for anything. It could be someone you know, maybe someone is a journalist in, a, in an unfriendly region and they are blocked to their sites that they report on or they don't want they don't want to be picked up uh, on the radar that they're interacting with certain sites. So they can use this as a as a layer of privacy. Um, so our solution is more based on giving the options and the features. But then as we grow, we want the users to tell us, hey, what are some use cases we haven't thought of? Like there, just the other day, we had a, a beta tester come in and say, um, "Hey, I heard a rumor that if you go on a travel um, to book a air, you know, flights. I, I went on a travel search site and I was looking at a flight t- from here to here, and I heard a rumor that if I'm searching from a different area, it's cheaper." The guy actually tried it out and he saved forty bucks on his flights because he viewed them from Mask, which output his traffic from another location. And he compared it to his home location, you know, internet, just using his browser normally, and he saved money. And it's, I wouldn't have thought of that. Like, that's just something that one of the testers said, I want to try. Wow. And I mean, that just makes you think like, that's something that 
loads of people don't even think about that again they're lulled into this convenience oh well if i search it from home i'm going to get the best price because this site tells me well guess what you got tricked out of 40 bucks mate <laughs> that's a scary thought yeah and it happens all the time but it's happening on such a wide scale that it's like it's that uh what do you call it um herd mentality right where mm -hmm. my brother my my friend my dad they all do this so it's, it's probably not so bad and that's the trick right if everyone's doing that convenient thing it conditions us all to say well hey that's okay um and it's not all bad it's not all evil but it's just that that compounds itself over time you know and people need to know there's ways to like you know say if i don't want to i don't want to be part of that then you can do it do something and it doesn't have to be drastic it can start small so do you think privacy i believe privacy is a fundamental human right mm. period However, do you think in your experience, privacy is something that can be granted by an entity, whether it's a government or an institution, or it's something that though is a right, we have to seize control of, otherwise someone else will. Mm. It's a very, very polarizing question because it makes you think there's sort of there are situations in society where other fundamental human rights come into play right so like let's say safety human safety of from harm um i'll give you an example because it was something i was reading the other day too just in new zealand uh in new zealand there's a law um in the court system called name suppression and what that means is that if you, let's say I committed a crime that's fairly low on the severity, um, the courts provide name suppression to the person being charged. So their name is in public because it could harm their, it could either harm their, I guess, reputation. It could uh, allow people to know who they are so it can affect their family or whatnot. And that's like a, it's a legal right within the court system here. In a lot of countries, they don't have that, right? If you get charged in court, it's on public record. Or if you are part of a bankruptcy case, your name becomes public. So in a way, it's what you said, and it's a reverse, right? Like where people don't think about that. That in, that's, in that situation, you could be wrongly accused of something and your privacy is granted by a, a, an authority for your safety in the name of your safety, right? Now, now how... How relevant is that for every situation? Well, I guess it depends. Um, but it's sort of a reverse, right? Like, whereas we we don't, a lot of things in life now, it's not privacy by default, which is a strange thing to think about, right? Like, um, yeah. if you're walking down the street and someone takes a picture of you, there's software online that can map that across Facebook and all these public profiles, and you might be able to be identified just from a picture, right? And that's how lots of security systems in some countries run. That's not privacy by default anymore, but nobody thinks like that. Nobody, th well, some people do, we do, but society on, on scale doesn't. So it's quite interesting to flip the, flip the script, right? And say, is there situations where privacy should be granted? I'd say there is some, but I think it would have to be closely tied to if someone else's human right was violated or at risk if you weren't to take that stance, you know? Yeah, so the, I think the issue there now becomes who was given that power. Yeah. 
because if a, if if an institution has the power to grant privacy, then they have the power to revoke mm. privacy, unless otherwise enshrined constitutionally, right, as inalienable rights that shall not be infringed on. So that gets very tricky because we look into examples that you just used. You know, how do we say, okay, enough is enough. These are inalienable rights unless it's in an egregious capacity. Then, of course, you are not entitled to privacy. Yeah. Which leads me to question another, you know, you know, how, at what point did you decide to tackle privacy? Mm. I mean, the concept of mask uh, was around for a while, different forms. I mean, I think, I feel like we just had a lot of stars aligned for us when we came across the opportunity to form a team around it and uh, carry it, you know, and, and, and take some work that was done at, but before us by a lot of very, very smart people, way smarter than me. You know, I never want to take the, um, <laughs> I, I don't want to take the credit for everything that's been built because there's so many people around me and above me and, you know, contributing to this amazing idea. Um, but I feel like in the last five to 10 years, people have realized the power of um, these centralized power structures around us that have built all these convenient, great products. Like we talked about convenience earlier. Like all these things we enjoy that kind of make our life easier, um, they are now centralized sources of data. And when you have that happen, there isn't you're you're gonna have degraded privacy because, um, well, let me ask you this: How many weeks go by where you haven't heard of a leak of loads of personal data? Like, is there really a month that goes by now that we don't hear about, oh, XYZ company accidentally leaked all of their clients' information online? Yeah. Like, it happens every month, but no one really stands up and screams about it. It's sort of like, oh, okay, another hack. Oh, and like, even myself, oh, this leaked. I'm like, well, I've already been leaked by this company, so I don't care anymore. <laughs> you know, like, my address yeah, and phone so number's you, online now. Who cares? You know, it's like... And that's crazy. Throw it away. Because do you think... <laughs> Yeah, do you think we are now in a place where we are desensitized to these problems? Because I do subscribe to Security Watch and a few other aggregator sites, mm. and I literally, I get them every day. There is literally a leak, a major leak, about every four hours globally. And I am so desensitized to it, which is not something to be proud of. But do you think we are at the point now where where there's so much going on that we become just desensitized to these catastrophic events mm. on a planetary scale. But we're so conditioned to hearing of them every day that they no longer carry the same weight that they normally would or should. Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of those things you can't read. I mean, as much as you want to try and prepare yourself and be careful and, and try and, or, I mean, once it's leaked, for example, you can't like fix it and, Unless you're like the guy from, um, you know, that show, um, I forget, is it Robot? I, I, I Robot? Or, I Robot. Yeah, Mr. Robot. Um, where, you know, you could find the hacker and delete your information off the leaked dark web. You know, like there's no way to do that, right? So it's almost no. like 
if you have that moment of self-realization, you have to just try your best to minimize your your risk of that happening later or have less things tied to something like an email if you can. So you're trying to just prevent how bad it could be. But I guess for anyone who's had their identity stolen, like a, a real case of identity theft, I mean, it's horrible. Like I've talked to people that have had that happen. It's like it can ruin your life for a short period of time or a long period of time. And when that happens to someone, they really do go through that whole, oh my gosh, I can't believe how bad this is, you know, like where it could have started by something like leaking your email and your password. Uh, and then it gets, you know, compromised and then they take over all your accounts. Yeah, I'm not trying to scare people by talking about this stuff, but because, you know, you and I are talking like, wow, we're all desensitized about this. That means it's happening yeah. to lots of people. A lot and you know like it, it's it's again it's it's, it's under reported it's under it's under absolutely underreported. um but it goes back to like one of those fundamental things that we talked about earlier is the convenience right like unless we stop trading con for convenience then we sort of will fall into those traps more and more so which leads yeah. you know and that leads me to my my next question you know and that is do you think user experience will be the next big thing in web3 crypto and decentralization in general yeah there's no there's no doubt there's no doubt in my mind it has to be it has to be a massive area of focus for everyone in the tech space not just web3 not just blockchain not just digital privacy like it has to be as easy as it will again if you make privacy so convenient that like we're talking about, like if if I was able to take out my smartphone and do my biometric fingerprint thing on it, and I knew that everything on my phone was encrypted, it was unhackable, you'd probably get into the habit of doing that every day, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you logged into a website to buy something and all you had to do was press your, your fingerprint somewhere, which is you, like, I mean, unless someone cuts off your finger and uses it, that's you. So you know it's like proven for the most part. It's you. Like you'd probably do that if that secured your privacy or secured your uh, private information and made sure you were you were taken care of. So mm -hmm. these technologies that we want to launch and get ma mass adoption, they have to be that easy where it's one, two, done. I mean, I, I don't like to say one step done because almost everything technical is very difficult to make one step. But if you can do one, two done, that's pretty cool because you can go one step, two step. Hey, that thing's sorted. So if we want to onboard the next billion users into Web3, it has to be one, two done. Like you want to um, open up an account and have crypto sent to it, one, two done. There's a couple of cool companies I've seen out there doing that. But what's the trade-off? There's always a trade-off. And some of them have been using smart contract wallets. Amazing technology, super um secure but what do they trade off you need an identifier you need either a discord account an email address a phone number now the phone number thing people are not realizing that that's so compromisable as an item of personal information you just ask your friends hey who knows my phone number not a single one of your close mates remembered it right so at what point yes, do you true. forget it <laughs> exactly 
Exactly. But that's used that's for everything. Sim swapping happens. Yeah. Like people still report, hey, I got sim swapped. I don't know uh, how easy that is now in the States. But, you know, like if you got everything in your life tied to an SMS uh, two factor authentication, man, I mean, that's scary. It is scary. So, or if you wow. lose your phone number, you know, your phone, you get a got to get a new phone number. I mean, yeah. So we got to make, but user adoption, it, it has to be based on user experience. And um, we spent nearly a year on that with our project because grandma can't use it if it takes her five to 10 minutes and a dev to help set up. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And the, I mean, the UX issue has been an ongoing one because you get this bubbles where engineers build tools for themselves and their friends, right? And they forget that there are other humans that might want to use these tools because I've seen very good technology fall on the wayside for this one reason. They forgot about the end user mm. and it just couldn't scale for that one reason. And on the other hand, I've seen really poor technology with a beautiful inviting user interface go on to garner great success and then they figured it out after the fact. So mm. knowing what you know now, what advice would you give a 16-year-old version of yourself if you could travel back in time? <laughs> Good question. Um, a few of my friends actually in the space too, they've helped me over the last few years. Um, one of them said something really uh, profound and I reflect on it a lot. And I'm like, it usually comes up when I'm asking about a question like, hey, we want to do this. We want to like fix this problem or solve something. And he says, you're focusing too much on the how, right? Like if all you do is focus on the how we're going to approach it, you're losing track of what you're actually trying to solve, right? So if I was to talk about this to my teenage self, I'd say, look, if you've got an idea or a you know something you want to solve, like you got to look at the what and look at the lowest common denominator user and try and work backwards from that as best you can. Because if all you think about is how you can solve it, or you're going to come up with lots of different approaches of how you can address it. But if you spend so much time on that, you're losing track on, well, what are we actually fundamentally doing? What's the simplest aspect of this that we're actually trying to solve? So, you know, in terms of the uh, blockchain space, you know, a lot of people talk about decentralizing things, decentralize this, decentralize that let's attach this blockchain to something and make it a product. It's like, what are you actually solving, right? Like, is there a purpose to the what? Like, what is, what is it, right? So for the longest time, if you talk of Bitcoin, the godfather of crypto, it, it was a store of value, right? And that was yeah. as simple as it, as, it, as it was, and it still is. And that's, that purity is the reason why that is the godfather now, and it's never been infringed on from the purity because it was such a simple application, right? Everything else beyond that is now stacks of things on top. So do you think, do you think every project needs a token? I don't, I mean, I don't think so. Like the, the tokenomics uh, is wide um, in variety now. You know, there's all sorts of ones that have come out, even the last few years, concepts we never saw and thought about before, like reflect tokens and ones that like, you know, have different uh, release or transferable rights and all these different things. I mean, I feel like public goods 
should sort of be able to operate without um, a token if the technology is there. I think the tokenization of products is almost a way to allow a peer-to-peer -peer interaction to happen, um, which I feel is important, right? Like, that's how you do remove that centralization aspect uh, in terms of a traditional company offering a service. If you want to have a service yeah. decentralized, there has to be some kind of exchange of something transactional because it's two peers interacting. Um, mm -hmm. A smart contract can do that. It's just how do you... Um, how do you sort of create a state in the EVM if we're talking about Ethereum that something's changed, right? If nothing, if nothing changes in a smart contract, then how do you know something happened? So it's sort of like that tokenization probably is important in that respect. But does that mean everything has to have a cost? I would say no, for sure. There should be ways for us to do things without a direct cost if it's possible, um, especially for public goods or exchanging something for future. Uh, value back, you know, without a net cost. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, unfortunately, many projects are first quick to talk about their tokenomics. I actually, um, I was at Messari in New York a couple of weeks ago, and and the, some of these projects had whole entire booths at this conference. Mm. They didn't have a ready product. They're not even in beta. However, they had their tokenomics. <laughs> you know, and at what point do you call timeout going, guys, stop? Okay, because you don't have a product, you don't have a service. You have an idea, a booth, a presentation, but you have your tokenomics laid out. So are you in the token business or are you in Web3? And how do we start to balance and shake out those who might be in the space for nefarious reasons? Hmm. It's a tough one. I mean, I don't want to like crash the party with all these people, but you know, we're sort of in the bear market, like in the midst of it. And so you could kind of say things in hindsight, right? But as long as there's going to be big, Mr. Big Money Bags VC buying up ideas, uh, that's just going to continue. You know, opportunists are going to be opportunists. It doesn't make someone uh, necessarily evil or malicious. Um, or a scammer. I hate that word because it's used so freely now. But just because someone's an opportunist doesn't make them bad. It means that they're trying to take advantage of an opportunity. For the last year, the whole space with Web3 uh, and the evolution of that um, and the decentralized infrastructure that's being built is a huge opportunity. And so people do see value in that, even if it's just an idea. And so that trend has continued a lot. And you mentioned that you know conference you went to like people know if there's a if there's a opportune tokenomics design already laid out that they can attract investment and with investment comes valuations with valuations comes very nice compensation for founders because they were the quote unquote first to come up with it and build it and um, I love founders I'm a founder but I guess they are making sure they can survive like we all can't work for free I, everyone gets that it's like it's like trying to pay, like if you've got a mate who is a builder and you want him to fix your house, you don't have him come over and say, hey, have a beer with me when you're done. You, you know, you, you give him some cash, you help him out because he had this time, you know, and you do that because he's a mate. But, you know, you can't work for free. So um, I know people believe yeah, you that. Can't. Yeah, yeah. You, you definitely can't. I think part of it is also how do you, you know, separate the noise from the signal. Yeah. 
right? Because we in this industry that still largely operates like the Wild West, you know, projects get spun up on an almost daily basis, you know, and one of the things that, in my professional opinion, stands out about Mask is you guys consciously, basically, you know, and I'm going to go off color here, you know, gave VC money the middle finger and just... I mean, you guys are rocking hard. I mean, your operating velocity and your your delivery cadence is almost unheard of. Um, you know, looking at projects across the Cosmos ecosystem, um, I mean, I think that's one area that you guys have really stood out. And in a sense, you know, my opinion still holds steadfast that that should be something that most founders should aspire to, if your conviction holds true to what you're doing than to the degree that you can, because where there's a will, there's a way, mm. right? And what you guys have built and continue to build without taking a single penny of institutional investment, you know, and I want you to speak a little bit on that because that's something that I'm sure there are many founders out there today that they may have that inclination, but they just need that validation. Like someone else is out there making it happen mm. and this is how they do it because belief is powerful i feel like it's got to be based on the purest fundamental reason you exist for it to be strong enough that people will almost want to contribute for nothing like not in the bad sense of nothing but and they would they are so um empowered by the like the vision that you're trying to achieve that they're willing to put in time and, and not expect anything back. Um, and then when they get something back from the project, whether it's like recognition, which is a massive thing socially and, and for human purpose, feeling fulfilled, like that's so underrated, you know, lots of teams like just saying, Hey, great job. You know, we couldn't have done this without you. I've like prided myself to always try and run a team like that. And um, you can't put a value on it. And you don't always see the effect of that until it compounds later. But just something like that's important. But then, you know, giving someone some some tokens from the uh, development fund, and maybe they're not, you know, what you believe they'd be worth because the market hasn't appreciated the, the project or the progress yet. But just that, that also thank you to a contributor. It empowers them to do more. And if you can build that culture, even if it's small, um, We've gotten to this weird trap, and even I, my mind has is, is wandered that way too uh, at times, but where you go into, you hear about a new project, and what do you do first? You look at their website, you look at their Twitter, and you look at their Discord, and you look, okay, how many followers do they have? Okay, how many people are in Discord? And you sort of like start to validate if, if they're big, they're good. And that's so, it's rubbish. It is actually rubbish because most of those are bots these days. Like vanity matrix. It's vanity matrix. It's social hierarchical beliefs that, oh, if someone's big, they're good, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so like, I think as a culture, like that's the heart, well, all the companies and projects and businesses I've been part of, culture is the hardest thing to build. You can't buy it. You can't make it out of thin air and you can't build it quickly. You have to actually earn it and develop it like raising a kid. You know, your kid is not born with all the skills and the temperament and all that out of the womb, right? They, they are both genetically 
um, influenced and environmentally influenced. It's the whole nature versus nurture thing. Starting a project is the same, right? You may have some genetics in there based on your founders and your contributors and your people that have influenced you and also the solution vision you have. That's all the genetics. And the environment has to be part of that to build it to the full potential, right? And if one of those is um, fostered more, like you'll get a different effect. And um, what was really special for us is I still, even just last week, I get people in the team coming to me and saying, hey man, I know I know it's the bear market. I know things aren't good. Like if you guys really need to keep some tokens for the developers, like I'm willing to just work next month and not, you know, and not have any uh, distributions. And I'm like, wow, you know what? I'm getting that from people without asking. And like, if you're in a project wow. where people are saying that to you, uh, first of all, you're doing something right. Like you're showing some leadership. Um, if you want some help in leadership, enrich yourself, you know, like, cause every project has to have a leader, several leaders, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it's what you said before, which is interesting. You've got these very techn technically minded people or developers building things for other developers sometimes, cause that's how passionate they are. Um, and the last few builders and founders I've spoken to the last few weeks, I shared this conversation with most of them. Um, Probably the biggest stumbling block for Web3 now is this a massive skill gap of business acumen. You know, there's so many projects that are, they're so amazing and they're on the cusp of delivering and just amazing infrastructure, amazing solutions to the space, but they don't have the advisement or leaders in the project that have business skills to really accelerate it, right? They might just be super genius like if you've got a project where the lead developer is autistic, that one's going to be a winner. <laughs> like every project, yeah, yeah, every yeah. developer who's mildly autistic is just an, a genius. But you have to have that business side around it or else you'll just sort of get swallowed in the other stuff. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, that's, that's where that's the vultures. Got. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the Silicon Valley, you know, the, the, the VC world comes in because they recognize those gaps mm. and they're ready to take advantage of those founders. So I'm going to ask you, who was your favorite teacher and why? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a cool question to bring bring up some of your um, your background, you know, like, and we talk nature versus nurture, right? So my sort of, some of the influencers I had in the education, um, the first one that comes to mind is a high school teacher. He was a very cool guy. Um, kind of reminded me of like a, because he was an older teacher, sort of like a grandfather figure. Um, but so what, what stood out to me the most was the first day we went into class, he had this meeting, uh, this whiteboard, and uh, something written on the top. And it said, um, I do not promise to be nice. I promise to be fair. <laughs> and like that always stood out. And actually carried with me for a long time because when I started managing people in different businesses and jobs I had, I sort of thought about that a lot because um, by nature, I was always leaning towards like the niceties. I, I sort of always gave people like second, third chances and not, not to, in the punishment way, but like, you know, I was giving a lot of chances. I was Mr. Nice guy a little too much. And I realized sometimes you need to just be fair, even if it's being a little bit of mean, even if it's tough love, because in a way you're doing that person or that team member a service by, um, bringing out the best in them, not letting them lull into complacency, say, oh, it's okay next time. It's like, you, you know, sometimes you gotta, 
give him a bit of love, give him a little bit of uh, tough love. Um, and that stood out to me. He was a really cool math teacher. And if, without him, I probably wouldn't have been as smart as I am now, I guess. <laughs> so are you, are you still in touch with this teacher? I actually was thinking about him the other day, and I, I should touch base with the school and see if he's still around. Um, but I did fall out of touch with him because now it's men some time ago, <laughs> decades ago now. Uh, but he was probably one of the, my favorites. And uh, it's good, wow. good times. So I, so don't That's... promise to be fair. Prom no, don't promise to be nice. Promise to be fair. That was the yeah. I think being yeah, being fair is more attainable than being nice. Mm. Yeah. There's an old saying. It's it's easier to say no than say yes, and then go back and have to change your yes. Yeah, that's true. Is interesting. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. So if you were, <laughs> this is an interesting one. You know, if you were in a high speed chase. What song would you want blaring on the radio? <laughs> Should I ask, am I the one being chased or am I chasing someone else? <laughs> oh, you're the one being chased. Privacy, man. Oh, true, true, yeah. Without a doubt, Life in the Fast Lane by the Eagles. Definitely. That is interesting. <laughs> I would have opted for ACDC. Yeah, well, next after that would probably be some uh, Metallica. <laughs> wow. But yeah, Life in the Fast Lane <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah. And what, what car would you like to be in if you're being chased? Ooh, what car? Hmm. Good question. Probably a mask-colored Audi RS7. Interesting. I would have pegged you for a 64 Mustang. Yeah, well, they're very hard to come by. I suppose I could get a classic car. I should to live up to the life in the fast lane song, actually, for a classic one. <laughs> 64 Mustang, ACDC, <laughs> Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. Right? Oh, yeah. I might need to rethink my car one. I mean, if you, someone says Lambo, then they're just like brainwashed by crypto now. <laughs> you know, which that's interesting because what's the whole when this when that with a w-e-n when lambo <laughs> like how did that even start i don't think anyone will ever know it's the old um you know trying to find the history of all that stuff right all the the memes that are like the mainstay in the space now where you look in the social circles it's uh you know online groups and uh, yeah it's almost like you'll never there'll probably be one person that puts their hand up and says i was the first one to write that and then someone else will say no i was the first one to write that. you'll never we'll never That's know so, <laughs> so i have to ask do you think there's an afterlife of any kind mm. i do i do think there is something that that goes on after i mean i i like to believe that I my belief system it bridges both science and spirituality like I guess that's just why how I've built my my concepts um over time because I'm a you know very technically minded person as well but you know I was growing up around um Judeo-Christianity um religions and stuff in the family so I do think there is a form of an afterlife like i feel like our our souls probably are transcendent of our physical being um i don't think it's as black and white as some people believe where it's just if you're bad you go down and if you're good you go up you know that whole thing i think there's more of just a uh, a transcendence that happens so if if you are spiritually connected you may be aware 
of what happens when you pass away from the physical world. And um, maybe maybe there'll be a way to explore that one day. Or, or we could be some crazy simulation from an alien race that you and I are just in a matrix. Who knows? <laughs> or the metaverse. Yeah, maybe we're in the metaverse now. And like the minute we boot up the real the metaverse we're building, that it just resets. <laughs> yeah, or as Elon Musk likes to, likes to say, we may be in a simulation. So let, that leads me to another question. 